If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20. And as you're finding that and uh, having a look at it, I I will recall an experience that I've had and quite a number of you have had where I, um, in the past, I went to live in a foreign country. Now, uh, it was Scotland. I was going to school there. And um, one of the things that turned out to be true, and this is true of anybody who goes to live in a foreign place, whatever it is, uh, wherever it is, is that you have to make adjustments. Uh, There there are rules that apply there that don't apply here. Um, I'll give you some examples of this when I went to live in Scotland. One of them is that no one speaks English. (laughs) You think they do because you think they all sound like Sean Connery. They don't. (laughs) You can't understand them. I've had this experience where I've been on a bus and somebody's trying to be very friendly to me at the the earliest days when it was about a month um, in Scotland and I had an elderly lady. She was talking to me very friendly. I had no clue what she was saying. I I recognized that it was English theoretically, what she was speaking to me is English, but I couldn't understand anything she was saying. In In Scotland, they speak Scottish. They don't speak English. Men wear skirts in public. Uh, They have a name for it. It's called a kilt, but we're adults here. We know it's a skirt. That's what they do. They wear them at weddings especially, but at other special occasions. You drive on the left in Scotland. Uh, I learned that by doing. (laughs) Uh, It was amazing how creative the Scottish people can be with, with words that are unmentionable. I never knew that nouns, adjectives, and participles could be put together that creatively uh, for, for my benefit to help me understand that I was making mistakes. Um, you tend to park on the sidewalk. If you don't, somebody will, <laughs> will accost you and say, you know, what are you doing? You're supposed to park on the sidewalk. The streets are too narrow for cars. The weather, um, a good day in Scotland is when the rain is coming down parallel with the ground. Um, If the sun comes out, people don't know what to do. They actually don't know what to do. On one occasion, I was walking toward the university and I passed (laughs) a series of apartments and out in front was a guy that (laughs) I never knew that something could be that white and still be alive. But he was like out in the sun, it was 50 degrees, and I'm I'm dressed like it's 50 degrees, and he's there. I thought he was dead until he smoked, you know, then I knew if it smokes, it's alive. Um, But you just never know. They don't know what to do with the sun. But uh, I had a great experience in Scotland, though, all things considered. But I did have to adjust to things like deep fried candy bars. Uh, strange, strange customs that people have. But it does indicate, and this would be true of anybody who, who travels to a foreign country, that you kind of have to make adjustments. And that process that you go through in making those adjustments is something that kind of leads inevitably to what is called culture shock, where you realize, okay, I, I really have to now adjust. I have to acclimate to the situation that I'm in. And I mentioned all that this morning because what you have in Matthew chapter 20 is a chapter that, that 
pushes back against our expectations. And it certainly does enforce the idea that in the kingdom of God, we live by the king's rules, not our rules. That it, when you go to be in the kingdom, so to speak, when you follow Christ, what's going to happen is the, the, the rules will be different than you expect. And chapter 20 is a sort of a takedown of the different assumptions we bring to the Christian life, which will not be the right ones to have. If you think back of what has been happening in Matthew's gospel, it, it, I think it just looking at it sort of naively, you'd say to yourself, well... You know, following Jesus sounds like this could be a really great gig, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, this marvelous teaching, right, that he engages in. Uh, if you follow him long enough, somebody's just going to bring you food. In the wilderness, you have no idea where it came from. It will be the, the best fish and bread you've ever had. You have no idea where it came from. But if you follow Jesus, that can happen. If you follow Jesus, healings will happen, and people would naturally be attracted to that. And indeed, that's what happened. Crowds would follow Jesus. And what then occurs is, if you sort of take that and you're not thinking about the other side of this equation, you'd be thinking, well, this is going to be great, right? Uh, follow Jesus, and it will be only beneficial. It will, it will have no challenges to it. It will be blissful rather than challenging. And this chapter in Matthew pushes back against that. You, you could anticipate that that's going to happen if you think about the fact that as we move closer to chapter 20, Jesus begins to talk about subjects that the disciples do not want to hear. Uh, a good example of that, I mean, most famously, is chapter 16, in which Peter, uh, you know, he says, when asked the question, well, who do men say that I am? Peter eventually says, speaking for the disciples at large, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus will say to him just then, blessed are you, Simon, son of, uh, <clears throat> son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That is, when Peter says what he says, something supernatural explains that. That's what Jesus is telling him. You would not say that about me if it were not for the fact that it was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. And even though Peter is, at that time, if you will, saturated with Holy Spirit power, speaking and identifying Jesus, as the Messiah, he will pivot immediately and, and tell Jesus, when Jesus predicts his passion, he will pivot and say to Jesus, no, that's, no, that's not going to happen to you. No. No, it won't. Knowing, of course, Peter being the smart person that he is, that if that could happen to Jesus, that could happen to him. So Peter's out in front of that and tells Jesus, no, that, that's not going to happen. No. And Jesus rebukes him in the strongest terms you can possibly imagine. Get behind me, Satan. I don't know about you, but if I, if I were to hear that from Jesus, I'd be crawling away. 
And yet Jesus must have radiated such love and grace that Peter didn't (laughs) at that point call it off and leave, but followed him anyway. So strong is the desire not to hear certain things from Jesus that you have on the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father himself saying (laughs) to to Peter and James and John, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. What are they going to listen to him about? Well, about that that topic that he was just talking about. That's what they're supposed to listen to him about. That's what they don't want to hear. And Jesus insists upon it. And then you get to these chapters, like chapter 18 and 19. Chapter 18 is about the, the humility that is necessary to follow Jesus the humility that it takes to follow him. Chapter 19 is about the extreme sacrifices, these counterintuitive duties that we have to shoulder in order to follow him. And so therefore, as I say, by the time you get to chapter 20, it certainly would appear, would it not, that this is not going to be the kind of kingdom that we naturally would think it would be. It's going to be different from that. And in fact, therefore, in chapter 20, you have teaching that makes it clear we live by his rules, not our rules. The first rule, I count four of them, is this. Here's what we think, and here's what's going to be wrong. The longer I serve, the greater should be my reward. Now, that makes perfect sense. When I say that, right, we all go, well, yeah, I mean, (laughs) who disagree with that? That expresses what we understand fairness to demand. The longer I serve, the greater should be my reward. Why wouldn't that be true? And yet you have Jesus telling a parable. This is the one that I'm especially concentrating on with you this morning, where he just upends that. And says, no, that isn't going to happen. And it cuts to the heart of how we think because, my goodness, the earliest idea it seems that children ever figure out, I certainly thought this way, I'm sure you did too, is we get the idea of fairness really early, don't we? My my sister got a bigger piece of pie than I did. It's not fair. Somebody, and then as adults, how's this work? Uh, Somebody gets more recognition than I do. It's not fair. I didn't get the promotion that I thought I was going to get, and it's not fair. And you keep thinking about that word, and you realize, okay, if I bring that word into my relationship with God, if I think I will be treated fairly, uh, then you don't get the cross, do you? Because the cross isn't fair, strictly speaking, is it? That one perfect goes to slaves would to substitute for you. Is that fair? It's not fair. It's what saves, but it's not fair. Now look with me at this parable, verses 1 to 2. It starts out a parable that that captures a scene in everyday life. Verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. 
Verse 2, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Okay, that makes sense. No surprises there. It's just going to be what would happen many times, uh, especially during the harvest when it's, it's these, um, some of these crops like grapes are time sensitive. You've got to get them harvested within a frame or you lose the crop. So, of course, you can imagine workers being there. They live hand to mouth. They come out. They make themselves available. Somebody says, yep, come on, let's go. A denarius a day, everybody says, yep, they go out and they work. Verse 3, but there's additional help needed. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. Of course, <laughs> you think about it, what's right will be different than they might expect. Verse 5, so they went. Going out again, about the sixth hour. So now we're talking about noon, right? <clears throat> and the ninth hour, that's about three o'clock. He did the same. And about the 11th hour, look at this, verse six, about the 11th hour. So this is like 5 p.m. In other words, the sun is almost going down now. About the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? Verse seven, they explained their situation. They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard also. So he finds these workers that have been there all day. And it's not a good situation, right? It's a hopeless situation because these are people who have to work daily to eat daily. So if you spend all day waiting for somebody to hire you and nobody does, you're thinking, okay, I'm not going to eat or it's not going to be long before I don't eat. And therefore, at this late hour, they're, they're so eager to work anything that they'll stay the entire day into this late hour just like, <laughs> where else am I going to go? And it turns out that if you want to put it this way, by the grace of the landowner, he comes out and says, you too, you too, come on, hurry up, let's go. <laughs> He's got to get his crop harvested, it's running late, so he hires them, fits the scene just perfectly. You too, come and work. Now look at verse 8. When the owner starts to pay the workers, it looks like he's going to do what we would think is the fair thing. Okay, it's all set up to make it look that way. Like, yes, he's going to start with certain workers and they're going to get a certain amount. And of course, as we progress toward the ones who have worked the longest, we would believe, I mean, naturally so, we'd be thinking, well, of course, yeah, they're going to get paid more. I mean, you know, is this crazy? They think they will. Verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Okay, so this, we're already kind of wondering, okay, the, whatever he's going to pay the people who came last and who didn't bear the heat of the day and so forth, well, whatever that's going to be, it's going to be much more for the people who worked all day long. That's what logic would tell us. That's what fairness suggests to us. Why wouldn't it be that way? Let's find out what actually happens. Verse 9. And when the, those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. 
Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. Verse 11, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. And I would tell you, I think, you know, you could probably sympathize with that. That is a very good argument. Excellent. It cites all the relevant facts. It makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't it be that way? And and no, it's not going to be that way. They give a very good argument. All the evidence seems to be on their side. And the answer is no, it's not going to be that way. And what you can imagine them thinking they certainly do is that same word that we brought up earlier. It's not fair. And now look at how they're answered. Verse 13. The owner answers in a way that elevates his own grace above rights. Look at what he says. Verse 13. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. He's not. I mean, why isn't he not doing them wrong? Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose, to, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Verse 15, look at this now. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. And what the, the owner is, is emphasizing, and of course we understand this is about our relationship with God, is that if we impose the category of fairness on this, if we say to ourselves, there is a way I ought to be treated by God, I have, here's the, here's the word you don't want to use, but it's what, you know, we slip into it. I have rights. I have claims on God. God is obliged to do certain things for me. He has to treat me a certain way. If I'm relevantly similar to this other person, I should be treated in a relevantly similar way. I ought to have that. And what this parable says is no. 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 And there is a great deal of damage that you can do in theology by imposing this word fair on your understanding of how God relates to us. If you try to wedge that word fair in there, you're gonna end up in a very bad place theologically. The truth is, this is stark, but God owes you absolutely nothing, save for what he has covenanted to give you by his promise. Okay, yes. What he has promised, he can, be, he, can be, he can be called, if you will, to, to remember those promises, of course, but those are always voluntary coming from God. They're never ones that he is obliged to extend toward us. None of those are like that. And if we think we have rights before God, it's going to cause so many problems in the way we think about how we relate to God. And it is the key, very practically speaking, to ongoing unhappiness in the Christian life. As you get, if you think about it, Matthew chapter 6, if you get the evil eye, you look around at what other people have, and you say, if they have it, that's not 
fair. And I blame God for it. Or I blame them. Or both. And this parable says, no. No. Just no. (laughs) It never works that way with God. He does not owe us anything but he does extend to us his grace, as is the case with these laborers who came late, and everybody in this room is one of those 5 p.m. workers. We're all like that. We're all people who are in the marketplace hanging around. We have no employment, nothing, no hope. (laughs) And along comes somebody at the last minute. We have no idea why. Hey, y'all want to work? We say, yeah, we do. And we recognize, I hope we do, that this is grace that we're experiencing at that time. His rules, not our rules. Here's the second one, verses 17 to 19. The closer I walk with Jesus, the safer I will be. That, that's how we think. The closer I walk with Jesus, the safer I will be. But it isn't going to work that way. Verse 17, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside And on the way said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be. And if you stop right there and forget yourself, if you forget what's come before, and we know how this works out, and you just abstract it from the context and say to yourself, The Son of Man, the Son of Man will be. I wonder what that conclusion of that sentence would have to be. And very naturally, we would think to ourselves, well, I mean, I kind of know what that's going to be. The Son of Man will be, what, welcomed in Jerusalem. Everybody will love him. (laughs) He will reign on a throne specially prepared for him. Everybody will delight in everything he says and honor all of his words. That's what we would naturally think because the Son of Man is the one who comes on the, on the clouds in power and glory from Daniel chapter 7. Do you not think that probably when he comes into, into Jerusalem, he'll be warmly received, red carpet, rolled right out? And it turns out that is not what is going to happen. That's not what happens at all. Look at how he completes that thought. Verse 18, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. In other words, he'll be betrayed by one of his own. He'll be handed over. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. So now he's being handed over to another group to do their dirty work. What's going to happen to him? He's going to be mocked. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be crucified and be raised on the third day. We're thinking, right? I mean, the closer I stick to Jesus, the safer I'm going to be. It doesn't look like that, does it? Not in the way that we normally understand the word safe. Not, not, not in that way. One of the paradoxes of the New Testament is you're promised protection, but the protection doesn't take the form of physical safety. Not one hair of your head is is harmed, and yet the harm that he's talking about is not the physical kind, obviously not, but the eternal kind. And yet if you were to follow Jesus in the early days of his ministry, you're thinking, hey, this is going to be great. Like if I just stick with this guy who can cast out demons with a word, who who can feed people in the wilderness 
miraculously and so forth. He can heal any disease. He can clear out hospitals just by going through them. And everybody in the hospital, they don't have them back then. You understand what I'm saying. Everybody just walks out. Love it. The closer I am to Jesus, the safer I'm going to be. And yet you find right there in his passion prediction, no. Not in the way that we're thinking. Not when it comes to the idea of physical security and provision. No. His rules, not our rules. Rule number three. The more I pursue honor, the better my chances of getting it. The more I, <laughs> more I make that my objective, the better my chances of actually having it. That would be the rule. We would think that way. You know, you got to apply yourself, get up 110%, leave it all on the field, right? <laughs> get all my sports cliches out of the way right now. If I do that, then I'm going to be honored because I'm trying hard. Let's see. We'll find out. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, and with her sons kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Now, <laughs> just as you look at this, I don't know about you, but I, when I think about the mother of the sons of Zebedee uh, coming up to Jesus, I'm thinking this, this is not going to be a good question. <laughs> it's not, right? Because I mean, you just imagine this conversation between James and John. Hey, um, James, uh, you think Jesus is a king, right? Yeah, yeah, so do I. And you know that kings have thrones, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. He's going to have a throne. And you know there are going to be these seats. On the right and the left. Yeah, ah, I see where you're going there, right? I understand that, right? Of course, <laughs> they know it would be awkward to ask Jesus that question. So the, 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 the sun came out from behind a cloud. The light beamed down upon them, and as if guided by a force outside of them, so I'm making this part up, they think together in unison, mother. We'll get mother to ask this question, they, they would not feel like they could ask themselves. And indeed, they do. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. Kneeling before him, she asked him something, verse 21, and he said to her, what, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And you, I mean, in light of what Jesus just said about his suffering and death, you would have to think that this question has got to be almost the most tone-deaf question in the history of man. Like, why would they do this, right? Uh, to concentrate on that particular goal in the light of what Jesus has just said. And of course, we know there's a deep irony to it because they ask what? They want to be at the right hand and on the left. And, and you know, you just fast forward to the, to the cross. Do you want to be there and there? But they're, you know, they're thinking, no, that's not going to happen. That's purely hypothetical. Like when Jesus talks about that, the disciples, in some sense of the word, stick their fingers in their ears and go, la, 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 la. Whenever Jesus talks about the cross, they just do not want to hear that. No. 
And they asked this question, and you're thinking to yourself, well, I mean, if they've been paying attention to what Jesus has been saying, that could be a very risky idea, but they want to be in those places. Look at verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you were asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. We are able, not really knowing all that that implies, but of course we know James pays with his life. He does. He does drink that cup. They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. James is is killed in Acts chapter 12. You read about that. John spends a significant part of his time, his life in exile on Patmos because of the testimony of the word. He says that in the Revelation chapter one, he does. They do drink that cup, absolutely they do. But then he says to sit at my right hand and my, at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. They thought, you know, um, <laughs> we, uh, you know, we just, work this out in such a way um, that uh, if we try really hard, you know, if we, if we angle for this, we will um, succeed. We'll have the places of highest honor. Look now at verse, <clears throat> verses 24 and following. Here's a fourth rule. The higher I rise, the less serving I'll have to do. That's what we think, right? The higher I get, the less serving I'll have to do. I'll have prerogatives that people don't have, and one of them is I won't have to serve. That's kind of logical, right? We think about it that way, but it doesn't work out that way at all. Midwestern was not always a strong institution. Um, (laughs) There was a period of time when it, it was touch and go whether this, uh, it, whether this school would survive. And, and one time, Alan Tomlinson, me, and Mike McMullen, we were, we were talking together and kind of joking in a grim way. We said, well, you know, we're, we could end up being the last three employees of Midwestern. Everybody else is gone. And we decided we'd delegate. You know, we'd figure out who would be which, in which position. And mine, it's, I thought this was great until I heard the other side of it. Um, I was going to be the president. I'll let you know that. Uh, The president of Midwestern, the last one, obviously. Um, And I would also be in charge of campus ops. (laughs) So I would have to mow and clean the restrooms and stuff. And that was kind of a drag. I I didn't understand that they had put those two together. Uh, McMullen was going to be, our entire administration would be McMullen. He would just literally do all the administration. Every bit of it, finances, you name it, institutional relations. We thought he would just sort of stand out there on Vivian Road and just yell help all day. (laughs) In that lovely accent he has, but he was like, help us! You know, we thought, great, that's IR on a low, low budget. (laughs) Alan Tomlinson would just kind of teach everything. It wouldn't matter, there's no students, so it'd be an easy job, but he would teach if anybody shows up. And you know, you're thinking about that, you realize, okay, that's putting together titles and types of work that we don't normally think go together, right? Because the way this works is the higher I go, the less serving I'll have to do. That's kind of how we process these things. 
It is not so with Jesus. Look at verse 24. Now the other disciples have heard about this effort (laughs) by James and John. They're like, oh, oh, I get it, Jimmy John. I see. Oh, all right. So what? You you just thought you would kind of get in there and and secure those seats? Is that what you were going to do? Verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. And we, you know, we'd like to think that it was a pure thing. They were indignant at the very idea that any such thing could be asked in abstract. You know, no, it's that they, they didn't think of it first. You know, they're bothered by that, right? The fact that, they, that James and John kind of, you know, found a way and asked the question before they asked it. They're indignant. And here's what Jesus says to that. Verse 25, but Jesus called them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. My goodness, do they ever. Um, (laughs) All you have to do is read 1 and 2 Corinthians to understand the stark contrast between sacred and secular leadership. Really obvious. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, he'll say, just to challenge this this entire expectation, chapter 4, he'll say, well, let me just tell you what it's like to actually be an apostle. Now that you all want to be that, I'm just going to tell you what this is. And he describes it in such stark language, the, the, the difficulty that being an apostle has brought upon him. He can even say that he is the off-scouring. But that's, that's what he means. And he means the scrapings from a very dirty place, which I will not mention in this context. But it's the off-scouring. Is it, that's what you want. The, really, you, you want to be an apostle because I'm telling you what it's actually like, not what you think it's like. And similarly here, oh my goodness, the Gentiles lord it over them because that's what happened in the ancient world. Leadership was about dominance. It was about presenting yourself as powerful, as eloquent, as, as a person who was well-dressed and wealthy and all the rest of it. I mean, it was all about that. And the Apostle Paul did not measure up. They even thought he wasn't physically a, a appealing enough. They'll say, oh, yes, his letters are impressive, but the guy that shows up and identifies himself as the author of these letters, No, he doesn't have command presence, you see. The Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Verse 26, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, who has, by the way, zero rights. In the ancient world, you have no rights. If you're a slave, you have no rights. Verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We think uh, the higher I go, the less serving I'll have to do. But it isn't going to work that way in the kingdom. Now, when you hear all those rules, this this demolition of our expectations, our demand for fairness, 
our demand for safe spaces in ministry, our demand that our efforts to rise will be rewarded with the effect we're trying to get. The demand that that leadership is to immunize us from the demands of service. We're, We're thinking that thought, and this chapter just demolishes all that. And it leaves us with this question, and this is the pivotal one of the entire chapter. What now, knowing that this kingdom doesn't work like we think, what is our greatest need? What do we really need? And verses 29 down to 34 implicitly answer that question. Verse 29, and as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. Verse 30, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out with 20-20 spiritual vision. They cried out, Lord, Have mercy on us, son of David. Verse 31, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent because they're little people. You understand that? These two blind guys, they're exactly the type of person in our worst moments we would think, "Uh, you know, I I want a place in ministry where that is not who I have to deal with because they would be unkempt people. They would be, you know, they, they, they can't take care of themselves. They're beggars. They're problematic. They are, as we say, high maintenance. Yes, that's what they are. And the crowd is like, come on, knock it off. Don't draw attention to yourself. If we could throw a tarp over you, we would. Verse 31, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more because this is their only shot at ever seeing. And I don't know about you, but if this were my one shot to see and I were blind, I'd be yelling at the top of my lungs, wouldn't you? So that's what they do. Have mercy on us, son of David. They say it twice. Verse 32, and stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And that is our question as well. Given what you know about chapter 20 and all that it says against our expectations, if Jesus at that moment asked you, what do you want to do for, what do you want me to do for you? Look at how they answer. Verse 33, they said to him, Lord, Let our eyes be opened. Verse 34, and Jesus in pity, pity, (laughs) this has to happen, in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. What do you really need when you find out that it's the kingdom isn't going to work like you think it's going to work. Um, <laughs> our, our demands for fairness, safety, and so forth, as I've itemized, what, what, what do you really need? And the answer is you need vision. You need the 2020 spiritual vision that allows you to see the unacceptable in the human sense and recognize that in the kingdom of God, that is, of course, how it must be. And then, having seen with perfect 2020 spiritual vision, you then rejoice and give thanks to God. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we recognize that vision is not natural, not when it comes to seeing these things. Our expectations are very different. They're, they're governed by the world, and we pray that you would deliver us from worldliness, that we would be servants, that our expectations would be right, that we would glorify you by being selfless people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.